0: Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. If you love this show and you listen every day, but you're one of the many listeners who's never made a donation to WDET, please think about making your first contribution today. Local shows like Detroit Today are the most costly thing that we do here at WDET, and we are always mindful of of every dollar we spend. Like lots of other institutions and businesses, the pandemic, boy, it really has hit us in the financial belt pretty hard. And there is a pretty significant gap that has opened up in our finances that we've got to fill by the end of our fiscal year in September, at the end of September. So in order to secure the local programs that you really love, like Detroit Today or Culture Shift, or essential music, we really need everyone who listens to contribute. So go to WDET.org and become part of the support for WDET, not just someone who listens. And of course, thank you to everyone who has already made a contribution. Up first today, we all know that the city of Detroit has been an economic driver of the American economy for a long time. But Why is that true? What is it about this city that has put it at the center of several completely unrelated industries over the course of three centuries? That's the question that Detroit author and journalist R.J. King decided to dig into when he began writing his book, Detroit Engine of America. Published last year, the book just won a gold medal at the Midwest Book Awards for cover design. R.J. King joins us now to talk about it and some of the aspects of Detroit's history that might surprise you. R.J. King, welcome to Detroit Today.
1: Uh, good morning, Stephen. Nice to see you, or hear from you.
0: Yes, <laughs> it would be great to see you here <laughs> in studio, but uh, we're not doing that these days. <laughs> maybe, maybe someday soon we'll go back to live interviews. Um, let's start with this. Uh, I, I always say that this is a city of makers, and that that is a big part of our DNA. And before we made cars, we made other stuff. You really dig into the nature of that in in this book. Uh, Talk about what interested you about that history of Detroiters and Detroit makers.
1: Well, there was largely a gap in Detroit's history. Everyone knew that the automotive industry here started in uh, around 1900 and and really powered our economy and and the global economy. Uh, But before that, there was a 200-year gap in Detroit's history. Nobody really knew sort of how things, uh, you know, really how the city was built. And uh, so I went back to uh, even prior to 1701 when the city was founded and Literally, the, uh, you had four superpowers of Europe um, in the 1600s, France, Spain, English, and the Dutch, and uh, the French came up to St. Lawrence and um, you know founded Quebec and then Montreal, and then they came to Detroit and um, then down into Ohio and Kentucky. So way ahead of the game, Detroit's the oldest city in the Midwest. It's uh, more than 80 years older than the country. And yeah, because Detroit is situated 600 miles from the East Coast, it really had to be self-sufficient. And mm-hmm. natural, uh, it was blessed with natural resources. And so the men and women that uh, that came here uh, had to, you know, survive on their own and um, do with uh, build the city with what they had around them. And uh, fortunately, they had uh, lots of you know timber, and and then as we got into it, iron ore and copper and uh, magnesium and other things. And, uh, we're able to put that into an industrial economy. So we had, uh, you know, when they first came, they built, uh, you know, wagons and then stage coaches, log homes, and then really got into steamships, hearths, um, you know, furniture, stoves, uh, marine engines. And so by 1896, when the first car was, uh, driven on the streets of Detroit by uh, Charles Brady King, uh, who was a mentor to Henry Ford. Uh, you had a, not only an industrial uh, output on the river mostly, but you had a skilled workforce, and so that all came together to, to launch the uh, the automotive industry here. But, uh, you know, Detroit really is the world's first manufacturing economy, and so that's the story that Detroit Engine of America tells.
0: Hmm. Hmm. So, so talk about why Detroit has been here for so long. As you mentioned, it is the oldest city in the Midwest and one of the few cities that's actually older than the country. Why has Detroit been here on the straits for as long as it has?
1: Well, it was a celebrated frontier town. Um, imagine living in the uh, 1700s, 1800s, uh, most everybody, you know, the Dutch and the English had uh, largely started New York and Baltimore and Boston, and um, in those days, uh, society was very, very regimented. Uh, either you were separated by your nationality or your religion, and uh, you could be persecuted if you were a Protestant, for example. But if you made it to Detroit, they welcomed you with open arms, and so people that could um, have the means and could traverse— um, you know land and water to get to the uh, eastern edge of Lake Ontario then you had basically a smooth ride to get to Detroit so and if you got to Detroit it was like they welcomed you with open arms and there was it was really like the America of what we all think it should have been and that it was a welcoming place and opened up your arms and so you know the french were here first and the irish were really the first wave of immigrants that started in the early 1800s and you know, the French allowed them to use their church until they could build their own, and uh, it was very, very welcoming. And uh, that really is, I think, um, you know, if you got to Detroit, people were pretty happy and they stayed here, uh, or they got here and they loaded up on supplies, for instance, uh, perhaps a stove, and then they moved further west. But, uh, you know, people and Americans especially our explorers, and, and uh, we were the only game in town for, for decades if you wanted to uh, to move west, especially along the the northern part of the country.
0: Hmm. Uh, I'm talking with R.J. King, author of Detroit, Engine of America, which just won a gold medal at the Midwest Book Awards for cover design. Uh, R.J. is editor of D Business Magazine. Uh, We're talking about Detroit's history as the engine of America. Even before we were building cars for the United States and the world, uh, we have been doing things, making things here that have been vital to the country and the world for a really long time, three centuries, in fact. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what are some aspects of Detroit history that you think don't get enough attention? What are some of the things about the city's past that have surprised you? And how do you think we look back at this time we're living in right now? How will we look back at this time we're living in right now in the city of Detroit? A hundred years from now, uh, as always, the number on the phones is three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will try to work you into the conversation. Uh, RJ, uh, I wonder when you were researching this book, if there were anything, any things that you came across that were surprises, things that, uh, you didn't expect to find about Detroit's history.
1: Yeah. One of them was we had an incredibly robust, um, and, uh, well-tuned, uh, no pun intended, uh, music industry making organs and, uh, you know, guitars and, uh, you know, violins and so much so that, uh, Queen Victoria twice ordered uh, major organs that she sent to uh, the different colonies that uh, England had in those days. Mm. Uh, so, you know, and then we had an amazing pharmaceutical industry. Um, you know, the forerunner to uh, Pfizer uh, began right here in Detroit with Park Davis. Uh, you had an amazing seed company in the um, the Ferry Seed Company, and he was one of the major. Starters of uh, Brush Park, which was Detroit's sort of uh, first um, uh, upscale neighborhood, just mm-hmm. north of uh, Comerica Park and Ford Field. There, and um, you know the the fact that uh, we were so far ahead of everybody. I mean, we're the oldest city in the Midwest, um, so we're even older than Pittsburgh. Uh, I thought was fascinating, and then uh, just how big the shipbuilding industry here was. It, it was just uh, An amazing um, industry, and also the fact that um, Belle Isle was really used as uh, a way to, um, you know, it it was originally called Hog Island, and the reason it was called Hog Island is because the farmers, uh, who really were the first sort of industry in, in Detroit in 1701, they would take their livestock over onto Belle Isle at night to uh, prevent wolves and other uh, animals from attacking uh, their livestock. Mm. And then eventually it became Belle Isle through a citizen's movement. Um, You know, it just goes on and on. Um, Slavery, of course, I I didn't think it was uh, as big of an issue, but there were definitely slaves into the 1820s. And then um, we were a major stop for the Underground Railroad, um, these store owners would hide uh, slaves and then help them get to the shoreline and then over to Windsor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, one gentleman, uh, Finney, he had the Finney Hotel where uh, he was right at Woodward and State Street. He had a nice hotel and uh, the bounty hunters from the uh, uh, plantations would send men up and, and try to find the escaped slaves. And all the while Finney, who owned the hotel, had a, barn and tavern in Capitol Park and he would hide slaves, um, in the barn at night and then, uh, help them get to the, uh, the Windsor shoreline. And and many of those African Americans took his last name as a, as a way to honor him. So, Mm. uh, people were really, um, you know, and then when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed by President Lincoln, uh, was it 1862, 1863? I mean, they threw huge parades and, um, you know, had, uh, uh, girls in the parade that had signs made uh, uh, for every state in the union that had voted for it, and it was just amazing and uh, just the camaraderie that people had back then and you know when there was a major fire, everybody came together, put together you know put down any of their differences and 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 tried to quell the fire. It uh, really was amazing the teamwork and the spirit of cooperation uh, that I came across in the history of uh, of researching this book.
0: Mm. So as you point out you talk a lot about historical figures major historical figures in the book and and one of them who gets a lot of attention is Lewis Cass who is a figure who's currently facing a reckoning for some of the worst aspects of his legacy including championing uh, Indian removal policies supporting slavery and in fact he was a slave owner himself. What do you think of his name being removed from the state capitol complex building that was named for him and efforts to take his name off other buildings, including, uh, tech, the, the premier public high school here in, in Detroit.
1: Well, you, you can't undo history. It, it, it happens. And, uh, I understand why some people would want to, um, strike those monuments and, Statues and um, you know buildings that are named after certain individuals, Uh, but at the same time, I think that we can't um, you know just totally wipe out our history and pretend that it never happened. Uh, It was a different time, it was a different era, and um, you know even in uh, if you you look at the uh, Detroit Free Press, uh, they were uh, taking um, ads uh, from these bounty hunters and plantation owners and really promoting the fact that, uh, you know, they were taking money for these ads that they were looking for slaves, which I was really, really surprised by. I didn't have didn't know that history of the free press. But I think everything, you know, these statues and monuments, I think we need to do a better job of explaining um, why this particular work of art or why this particular building was named after this person and let people decide um, and come to understand the history and and put themselves in that time frame and um, yes, it's much different today, and we're a much better society today. Mm. But at the same time, I don't think we can totally wipe out our history and then, you know, brush off our hands and call it a day, and we're, we're, you know everything's going to be okay now. Mm. I, I I just don't think that's the case.
0: Yeah, contextualizing it is really important instead of just kind of wiping things away and pretending that they didn't happen or that they're they're not there anymore. Uh, let's go to Chris in Detroit. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you doing? How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm okay. So, one of the things that really surprised me um is when I went to the um uh the National Lynch Museum in uh I think it was Alabama. In Alabama. It's that, yeah,
1: is that we had a um is that we had a plaque there for a lynch that happened to be trade in the 1870s mm. during the whole Jim Crow movement.
0: Mm. I, I, that doesn't surprise me terribly uh, chris i mean because uh, the, the the racial history here is pretty uh, pretty spectacular in terms of things that have happened uh, you know in the past that that were part of what was going on in america at the time i mean we had slaves here in the city of detroit so it's not i guess a terrible surprise that uh, that we had a-, a lynching i don't i don't know the particulars of of that story. I'm not sure RJ, if you came across anything like that in your research,
1: not as late as the 1870s. That that does surprise me. I um, as I mentioned, the underground railroad here was, was very, very strong. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, um, was certainly, um, you know, those that came through the African Americans that, uh, that made it through, uh, were incredibly thankful
0: for, mm-hmm.
1: for what, uh, traders had done. And, um, you know, Judge Woodward, who was really the first sort of main judge, there was actually three territorial judges at that time in the early um, 1800s. He, he was largely in uh, favor of freedom and uh, really went out of his way to, to make sure that uh, the slavery trade was um, as much as possible, um, you know, wiped out from the economy. Our first mayor, John R. Williams, mm-hmm. he he was a slave owner, um, and he was uh, one of the founders of the Detroit Free Press. So, you know, it, it um, the tentacles of slavery uh, are far and wide, and, and thankfully today they, um, uh, the slavery's gone. But uh, I, you know, we're still dealing with uh, some of the uh, racial tensions that uh, we really should have put behind us a long time ago.
0: Yeah. Uh, Another figure in your book who gets a lot of mention is Mayor Hazen S. Pingree, a story in the book that has some really interesting parallels to modern times is his change of heart when it comes to his own workers' fight for economic justice. Talk about what that was about.
1: Yeah, so Hazen Pingree, uh, Louis Cass was probably the most famous person in Detroit in the first half of uh, the 1800s. Hazen Pingree was probably the most famous of the second half. He uh, he grew up on the East Coast. Uh, I believe he came from Baltimore, fought in the Civil War. He, uh, he had a shoemaking background. He came here after the war, having heard good things about Detroit, and uh, was able to partner with uh, another gentleman, and they built up a major shoe company that uh, had made shoes and slippers uh, and very fancy boots um, all over the world and um, into the middle of the 1800s. 1880s, uh, excuse me, 1885, 1886, uh, major strike at his shoe operation, and, and at first he took the position of, um, you know, sort of a cold corporate baron. But uh, over the ensuing months, the strike lasted more than a year. He really came to change his whole position and, and took um, took in the plight of the workers and what they were going through, and really became a champion of the common man. And then he was elected mayor in 1889. Uh, really, a, you know, a mayor of the people. They called him Potato Patch Pingree because during the uh, 1893 financial world financial crisis, uh, he allowed people to farm city-owned lots. Right. So, hence the name Potato Patch Pingree. Uh, and then he went on to. Um, uh, run for governor and he became governor of Michigan. There, there was a period there that was quite controversial. He tried to be both the governor and the mayor <laughs> at the same time, mm-hmm. <laughs> but the uh, Supreme court struck that down. And so he became, uh, uh, the mayor uh, became the governor, but his statue is on the, uh, the West side of, uh, Grand Circus park right there at Woodward and Adams. And on the other corner is, uh, mayor Mayberry, uh, who was kind of his arch enemy, uh, politically. He, um, came after, uh, Pingree, um, in terms of the mayor's positions. And, uh, Mayor Pingree had struck down a lot of the, um, uh, monopolies that were occurring in the utility field. And, uh, and Mayor Mayberry, he was, a he was kind of more of a, a friend of the corporations and the businesses. Yeah. Uh, but he did really, uh, Mayor Mayberry really was the one that, uh, provided uh, and and stopped the city council from passing laws that would ban or greatly reduce the use of automobiles. And uh, had he not been in that place at that time, uh, it may be that the auto industry might not have uh, have rapidly
0: uh, advanced as it did here. Yeah, yeah. We might be a really different city. Okay, R.J. King, author of Detroit engine of america really great to have you here with us on detroit today thank you very much for coming by
1: well thank you so much steven people can just find it at detroitengineofamerica.com
0: yeah yeah wonderful book and that cover design which was a gold medal medal winner at the midwest book awards is really a standout uh, effort as well uh, the book is great but the cover really catches your eye uh, again rj thanks for being here
1: thank you so much Stephen.
0: All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk with the team behind a new ESPN 30 for 30 podcast that examines the careers of U.S. gymnastics legends Bella and Marta Caroli and the ways they fostered an abusive culture that helped protect sports doctor Larry Nasser. Stay with us on Detroit Today.